Today we are continuing and coming near to the end of our sermon series, going through the, that is based off of the book that was written by Martin Copenhaver called Jesus is the Question. And we have been looking at various questions that Jesus asked, recognizing that Jesus really found value in teaching the truths of the gospel by provoking people to further thought, to get their curiosity to expand. It's a great opportunity. If you haven't yet had the book, we encourage you to stop by the office and pick it up because Dr. Copenhaver is going to be here in two weeks' time. Uh, he'll be at, on an event on Saturday and then preaching here on the Sunday. But it's a great moment for us to ask ourselves, are we the followers of Jesus Christ that we have always thought ourselves to be? And does the vision that we have for what it means to be someone who follows Jesus Christ match up with the vision that Jesus had himself. Today we're looking at a question that Jesus asked, paraphrased, said, how much bread do you have? He asked this question of the disciples. And so I'll invite you to turn to me to Mark chapter, uh, let's see, chapter eight. And we're going to read a story that might sound familiar to many of you if you've been around the church for a while. After Jesus has cured a deaf man, after he has had a lively conversation with a woman on the nature of faith, after he himself had been criticized by the Pharisees for satisfying his hunger without going through all of the right rituals and traditions, Jesus says this to the disciples. He says, in those days when there was again a great crowd without anything to eat, he called his disciples and said to them, I have compassion for the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way and some of them have come from a great distance. His disciples replied, how can one feed these people with bread here in the desert? He asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. Then he ordered the crowd to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves. And after giving thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute. And they distributed them to the crowd. They had also a few small fish. And after blessing them, he ordered that those two should be distributed. They ate and were filled. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. Now there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me as we pray. Lord, we come here longing to encounter the fullness of your spirit. We come here longing to return some of the many blessings that you have given to us. We pray, God, that our longing might be for your truth, for your justice, for your love, for your hope. We pray that as we encounter these things, that they will flow over us and transform us, molding us into the image of eternity that you have planned from the beginning. Speak to our hearts, show us the truth, 
and give us the courage to follow it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. When we don't want to do something, our instinct is to portray that thing that we don't want to do as being impossible to achieve. My favorite example of this is when you ask a kid or a teenager to do something, like pick up their socks from the ground, and they respond with an amount of shock and distress and dramatic arm flailing that would probably win them a Tony Award. Suddenly, those athletic socks that are lying next to the hamper on the floor appear to weigh 200 pounds, and that hamper is just too high for them to reach. It's funny to laugh at our youth when they do it, but we as adults, we have the same tendency to try and convince others that the thing that we don't want to do is actually impossible to achieve, although we as adults tend to employ different techniques. Sometimes we increase our use of technical jargon to make it sound more complicated, explaining how we can't possibly clean out the garage this weekend because the barometric pressure is not ideal for facilitating the necessary wind patterns that will minimize dust accumulation, therefore risking the acquired assets that would benefit from said cleaning. Most of the time, though, we don't have to work that hard to portray something as impossible. It only takes the tone of our voice. Clean the garage this weekend with just a tone. A four-hour weekend project sounds just as likely as our ability to conjure pigs to fly. How can one feed these people with bread here in the desert? Ask the disciples. Their tone is unmistakable. They don't want to do it, so they make it sound impossible. And perhaps we would be inclined to join them in their effort to assure them and ourselves that it is impossible if the following verses didn't show us that this impossible thing was actually achieved and achieved without any real strain or anxiety or sweat and elbow grease. It's understandable why the disciples didn't want to undertake the task of feeding the thousands. Their cursory assessment told them that it wasn't going to work without a miracle. People speckling the landscape all around them as far back as the horizon and not a pot or pan between them, not a tree or bush to be found and picked from, not a stream running nearby that could provide them refreshment. They took one look at that crowd and their imaginations fast forwarded to them scrambling to make something out of nothing, facing hungry people who would find some way to be angry about whatever they were given because it had gluten in it or because they're on a salt-free diet. The disciples took one look at that crowd and drew a direct line to the result of them being hot and sweaty 
and underappreciated in the desert, having probably failed at their mission, doing all of that work to quite possibly go hungry themselves. Can you sympathize with the disciples? It's no wonder that they didn't want to do it. It's no wonder that they wanted to make it sound impossible. But it wasn't impossible. Many biblical scholars have interpreted this passage in a way where the miracle of feeding the thousands in the desert was akin to the European folk story about stone soup. Maybe you've heard this story. We've talked about this recently here. There were some travelers coming to a village carrying only an empty cooking pot. They had been traveling for days. They were very hungry, but the village folk were poor and they were fearful that sharing their food would cause them to starve themselves. So then one of the travelers goes to the stream and fills the pot with water, drops a large stone in it and places it over the fire. Watching them, one of the villagers becomes curious and decides to go and ask what the travelers are doing. They answer that they are making stone soup, which tastes wonderful and which they would be delighted to share with the villager, though it still needed a little bit of garnish, which they're missing, in order to improve the flavor. The villager, hungry himself, and now eager to share in this meal, decides that he can probably part with a carrot. And so the carrot is added into the soup. Soon another villager comes to the fire, curious about the pot, and hears the same story. And so she decides that she can probably share an onion from her garden, and it goes into the soup. And so it goes, as each villager comes by, one new item is added into that pot of soup, a handful of peas, a stick of celery, a few herbs unused from the week before, a bit of salt, a small portion of meat. Finally, the stone is removed from the pot and the pot of soup is shared by the travelers and the villagers alike. Many scholars believe that the feeding of the thousands was achieved in a similar way. As the disciples produced the seven loaves of bread between them, as Jesus blessed that bread and designated that bread for everyone, and as they started to share it with those around them, those scholars believe that others in the crowd also started to pull out small pieces of bread and dried fish and nuts that they had left in their pockets after traveling for three days. And rather than keeping what they had brought for themselves, they contributed what they had to a larger whole, which resulted in everyone having more than enough. It was a miracle. But the miracle wouldn't have been achieved without thousands or with the thousands in the desert if the disciples had remained nonchalant, convinced that no amount of their energy, no amount of their resources could be used to make an impact on people's hunger. Just as the miracle wouldn't have occurred in the folktale if the villagers had remained skeptical of the travelers and of one another, reluctant to offer what they were comfortable to give in the hope that it would make the soup better. 
Perhaps that's why the Gospel of Mark begins this whole miraculous story with Jesus' own words when he says, I have compassion for the crowd. This miracle, all of these hungry stomachs feeling full, started with Jesus' ability to move beyond his own cursory assessment of how they can solve the problem and move instead to how they could best use the resources that were in front of them to care for the people that were right there. I have compassion for the crowd, Jesus says, because they have been with me for days with nothing to eat, a long journey home ahead of them. And the disciples hear his compassion and they respond with that impossible tone of skepticism. To which Jesus then replies, as we found him to do, with a question. How much bread do you have? You know, it's really funny. Given the circumstances that the disciples and Jesus are facing, needing to feed thousands of people with whatever crumbs they can find in their pockets, given the situation, we often interpret the most important part of Jesus' question to be his reference to the loaves, particularly how many of them. We really want to know how many loaves they all have. But I don't believe that that's what Jesus is emphasizing in this question at all. I don't think that for Jesus, the most important word in this question is how much or is loaves. I think for Jesus, the most important word in this question is you. How much bread do you have? What are you? going to contribute to this moment. We can often convince ourselves that unless we have the whole solution within our power, that there really is nothing that we can do, that we shouldn't even try. We're not even going to make an impact. Our little portion might actually make it worse. If we can't provide the person sitting on the off-ramp with permanent housing and a fresh start to life, then we won't even look them in the eye and share a smile. If we can't pull that youth out of their moodiness and anxiety and witness them enjoying the freedom of life that comes with their age, then we will completely avoid them. If we can't convince our friend to leave her abusive partner, then we'll never broach the subject. Like disciples, we can dismiss our ability to affect change in impossible situations, sometimes because it might feel overwhelming, and sometimes because we just don't want to. But like we see with the stone soup, like we see with the feeding of the thousands, miracles don't just often come from one person. Miracles are often the result of the aggregation of marginal gains, small, small steps taken consistently one after the other that result in a transformation. As writer James Clear says in his article on the subject, he says, it is so easy to overestimate the importance of one defining moment 
and to underestimate the importance of improvements, of making small improvements on a daily basis. Too often, we convince ourselves that massive impact requires massive action. Perhaps one of the most famous stories about this aggregation of marginal gains comes from the British cycling team. In 2003, professional cyclists in Great Britain had endured nearly a hundred years of mediocrity. Since 1908, British riders had won just a single gold medal at the Olympic Games, and they had fared even worse in cycling's biggest race, the Tour de France. For 110 years, no British cyclist had ever won the event. It had gotten to be so bad that one of the top bike manufacturers in Europe refused to sell bikes to the British team because they were afraid that it would hurt their sales if other people saw the British using their gear. Then, in 2003, Dave Brailsford was hired as their head coach. And unlike previous head coaches... Brailsford was committed to a strategy that he referred to as the aggregation of marginal gains, which is the philosophy of searching for any tiny margin of improvement in everything that you do. Brailsford and his coaches, they began by making small adjustments to the things that you would expect for a professional cycling team. They redesigned the bike seats to make them more comfortable. They rubbed alcohol on the tires for better grip. They asked the riders to wear electrically heated overshorts so that they could maintain the ideal muscle temperature. They used biofeedback sensors to monitor how each athlete responded to a particular workout. The team tested various fabrics in a wind tunnel, had their outdoor riding gear switched for indoor racing suits because they proved to be lighter and more aerodynamic. But they also looked to improve the unexpected or often overlooked areas. They tested different types of massage gels to see which one led to the fastest muscle recovery. They hired a surgeon to teach the team the best way to wash their hands so that they might reduce their chances of catching a cold. Obviously, this happened before 2020 when we all learned that skill. They determined the type of pillow and mattress that led to the best night's sleep for each individual rider. They even painted the inside of their team truck white so that they could spot dust more easily, dust they would have missed, but if it was left on the bikes, would have damaged them over time. And as these small improvements accumulated, the results came faster than anyone could have imagined. Just five years after Brailsford took over, the British cycling team dominated the road and track cycling events in the 2008 Olympic Games in Beijing, winning an astounding 60% of the gold medals in cycling. Four years later, when the Olympic Games were held in London, the British cyclists set nine Olympic records and seven world records. That same year, Bradley Wiggins became the first British cyclist to win the Tour de France, to be followed by his teammate the next year, Chris Froome, 
who then went on to win the Tour de France for three more years in 2015, 16, and 17, giving the British team five Tour de France victories in six years. And none of it was done by one big change. None of it was achieved through one major event. Complete transformation of a 110-year legacy was made in only five years by the aggregation of marginal gains, by making small, manageable improvements, by making small, manageable contributions in every conceived area. Friends, I don't believe that Jesus ever expected the disciples to be the ones to work a miracle. That's Jesus' job. That's God's domain. But it was from the disciples. It was from what they contributed into the situation that that miracle happened. How much bread do you have? It's not about the amount. It's about you and me. What small portion can we give to the community around us for Jesus to then take and bless and distribute to everyone? What small consistent change can we implement in this community of faith that over time will help to improve us all? I don't know what that might be for you, but I know that there is something for you. Just as I know that I and everyone else here is relying on you to contribute it. Amen.